Hey everyone, it's Pacific, and welcome to another episode of Insidious Inspirations. Not too much to talk about this week, but a reminder. If you like the show and you like what we do, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Reviews are one of the best ways to get our show into the ears of new listeners. And with that all said and done, I want to welcome you all to the Stanley Hotel. In May of 1980, acclaimed director Stanley Kubrick released his film adaption of Stephen King's horror bestseller, The Shining, with a screenplay from Kubrick himself and novelist Diane Johnson. It tells the story of the Torrance family, Danny, Wendy, and Jack, who decide to spend the weekend alone in the Overlook Hotel, an evil place with a sordid history, so that Jack can finally finish writing his book. There's just one problem. The last caretaker of the Overlook, who was left there over the winter, hacked his family to death with an axe. And with some supernatural help, it looks like history might just repeat itself. The Shining has always elicited extreme responses from people. When it was first released, it drew ire from critics and was even nominated for two Razzie Awards, Kubrick for Worst Director and Shelley Duvall for Worst Actress. Since then, it's been reevaluated, from an eternal place in the Library of Congress's National Film Registry to being widely considered one of the most unsettling movies of all time. The Shining is a film that gets under your skin. It lingers with you. So even when the credits roll and you check out of the Overlook Hotel, it never really feels like you leave. So, you can only imagine how it feels to check into the real thing. The Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, Colorado where a haunted past and one fateful visit from Stephen King would change the course of horror history forever. I'm Nicole Goodnight, someone who got to check into the Stanley Hotel just two weeks ago, and this is Insidious Inspirations. There's something undeniably eerie about hotels. Their liminal spaces, transitional points between one location and the next, places where you're never supposed to stay for long. Even the most high-end hotels designed to replicate all the comforts of home have a kind of uncanny quality to them. If ever you've left your hotel room in the middle of the night and seen those long, beige hallways with geometric-patterned carpets stretching off into infinity, you'll know exactly what I mean. And in the words of Stephen King himself, any big hotels have got scandals, just like every big hotel has got a ghost. Why? Hell, people come and go. Sometimes one of them will pop off in his room, heart attack or stroke or something like that. Hotels are superstitious places. The past, present, and even future of the Stanley Hotel are defined, like many ghost stories, by a number of strange visitations. The first one happened before the Stanley Hotel was even constructed. The year was 1903, 13 years before the local town of Estes Park would even be incorporated, and a strange, unfamiliar figure was rolling into the mountainous region in a newfangled, steam-powered motor car. The motor car ground to a halt and a tall, rickety man climbed out. The man looked like death on two legs, wearing a dark, finely tailored suit, his sunken, skeletal face framed by a beard and mustache. The man had trouble walking and a deep, hacking cough that shook his bony form with every heave of his chest. The man was so infirm that his wife, who had accompanied him on the journey, had to help keep him upright at times. 
Perhaps the least strange thing about this altogether strange man was that he was very far from home. His name was Freeland Oscar Stanley, and like many in the early 20th century, he was dying of tuberculosis, more commonly known as consumption at the time. His personal doctor had given him a grim prognosis. While sunlight, exercise, and fresh air could perhaps mitigate some of his worst symptoms, it was extremely unlikely he would live through the summer. That's why he and his beloved wife, Flora, had made the trip all the way from their home in Kingston, Maine to Estes Park, Colorado. At best, the area might help ease some of his suffering. At worst, it would at least give him a beautiful place to die. Stanley's doctor had personally assured him that he would come to Estes Park himself at summer's end to see to it that his body was transported back to Maine for the burial. But in the end, that wouldn't be necessary. Over the several months that Freeland and Flora Stanley remained in Estes Park, Freeland's health underwent what could only be described as a truly miraculous recovery. With the help of sunlight, fresh air, and clean mountain living, he slowly gained back his strength and stamina, to the point that he was taking five-mile hikes in the mountains every single day. He also gained back a great deal of the weight he lost after being ravaged by the disease, and through frequent exercise, his lung capacity also improved. In short, with the help of Estes Park, Freeland Stanley had beaten tuberculosis. He was so incredibly grateful for the second chance at life the rustic community and its incredible landscape had given him that he vowed to return every year in the summer months in order to keep up good habits and preserve the health he regained. Something about this place was special. It worked miracles. He quite literally owed it his life. This leads us to another incredibly interesting fact about Freeland Stanley. He was widely considered to be a genius inventor whose creations had also made him incredibly wealthy. He and his brother, business partner Francis, had made a fortune from their advancements in dry plate photography, and after that, they revolutionized transport with the invention of steam-powered motor cars, including the one that had first taken them to Estes Park. And, if all this wasn't enough, he also had a sideline in architecture. Freeland and Flora Stanley enjoyed their stays in Estes Park, but because of their giant fortune, they were a little more accustomed to opulent East Coast living than the more humble way of life out in the Rockies. However, being a perennial problem solver, Freeland Stanley figured out a way to bridge the two places in 1907. He'd buy up some land in the mountains near Estes Park and build his own hotel, where other wealthy Eastern business magnates and socialites could summer in Colorado with a touch of class. But the hotel would serve a dual purpose. It could be a swanky vacation spot for holidaying moguls, but it would also function as a tuberculosis recovery center, where patients from across the states could embrace the same curative powers that had saved Freeland's life four years earlier. And so, once the proper preparations were made, the construction began. The construction took another few years because the hotel was to be incredibly complex. The main hotel building, which was completed in 1909, was a grand palatial structure with over 400 guest rooms and a network of underground tunnels retrofitted into caves so that service staff could go to and fro without running into the guests, which was considered a faux pas at the time. The hotel also had a beautiful concert hall built by Freeland as a tribute to Flora, who loved spending time there whenever they were in the area. There was also a carriage house, a separate cottage for the manager, and a lodge known as Stanley Manor, a comparatively quaint bed and breakfast adjacent to the main building. But the work didn't stop there. Freeland Stanley truly went all out on what would later become known as the Stanley Hotel. 
He helped construct a nearby power plant specifically so that the Stanley Hotel could be fully provided with electricity, which was novel for a building of this scale in 1909. He also had gas lamps fitted in every room for extra comfort. And in order to make it easier for guests to reach the hotel up in the mountains, he had the Stanley Motor Carriage Company construct some special steam-powered vehicles called mountain wagons to help deliver guests to their quarters. The hotel also provided a boon for Estes Park itself, leading to the town's growth and directly contributing to it being incorporated in 1917. Stanley's involvement in the area also led to the establishment of the Rocky Mountain National Park, aimed at preserving the beautiful natural landscape that had restored Freeland Stanley to health when he first arrived. By all accounts, the Stanley was a lovely hotel, whose biggest issue was not being all that profitable. But in 1911, the first of many strange happenings would occur in the Stanley Hotel, specifically involving Room 217, a room which would become incredibly significant for the hotel later. While the gas lamps in every room did enhance the comfort of the hotel's guests, it also enhanced the risk. This was discovered by the head chambermaid working at the hotel, a woman named Elizabeth Wilson, who had the job of going room to room at night lighting the lanterns. But due to a gas pipe malfunction in room 217, Elizabeth caused a massive gas explosion which heavily damaged around 10% of the hotel and threw her down a whole floor, breaking both her ankles and putting her in a coma. Thankfully, despite some injuries caused by the explosions, nobody died. The hotel was repaired and business marched on. Over the next several decades, the hotel's operations continued as normal, albeit on a steady downturn. Much like the Overlook Hotel, the Stanley was only ever intended for summer vacations. As a result, it wasn't built with adequate heating, making it a lot less hospitable than all year-round hotels built in the years after the Stanley's founding. Little by little, the consumer base of the hotel fell off, as the hotel itself changed a variety of managerial hands. Freeland Stanley himself finally passed away in 1940 at age 91, leaving the hotel without its guiding light. As the place became cheaper and more rundown over time, rumors started to spiral about frightening things going on in the hotel. Though, of course, these rumors were only really circulated among the locals in Estes Park. By the time the 1970s rolled around, the Stanley Hotel was teetering on the edge of foreclosure and demolition. It was little more than a big, spooky building up in the mountains that had seen far better days. Any day now, everything Freeland Stanley built could come to a depressing end. But another strange visitation was about to change the course of the Stanley Hotel's history forever, just as the Stanley Hotel was about to change the way we look at horror. In 1974, another couple from Maine arrived in Estes Park looking for a change. Their names were Stephen and Tabitha King. Up next, find out how a visit from legendary horror author Stephen King inspired The Shining and saved the Stanley Hotel, while also opening up the floodgates for countless ghost sightings. But first, a word from our sponsors. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. And now, back to our show. If you're a fan of horror, Stephen King is a writer who requires no introduction. 
He's written iconic books that have gone on to shape pop culture from the 70s and 80s onwards, even beyond horror with thriller and drama hits like The Running Man, The Green Mile, and The Shawshank Redemption. But while he's now a prolific titan of the genre, back in 1974, King was still just a plucky young upstart. He had two novels under his belt, Carrie and Salem's Lot, as well as a reliable stable of short stories and novellas. But now, he had a reputation to live up to as horror's most exciting new writer. He needed another hit, and while living with his family in Boulder to work on his next book, Darkshine, a novel about a psychic little boy in a demonic amusement park, some locals told him that he might find the inspiration he needs in Estes Park. That's what led him and Tabitha to the Stanley Hotel. They arrived on the last day of the season, much like the Torrances in the novel and film, so the few guests that the hotel had were already on their way out. Immediately, King's curiosity was provoked by the setting. This hotel, which had clearly once been a palace of opulence, was now a mere ghost of its former self. Seeing it without any other guests made the place even eerier. It was perfect tinder for an excitable horror writer's overactive mind. Stephen and Tabitha's surreal evening continued. They were taken to the main dining hall for dinner, where they were served alone. After this strange dinner, Tabitha retired to their room, room 217 where Elizabeth Wilson was almost blown to kingdom come over sixty years earlier. Stephen decided to stretch his legs and explore the hotel a little, seeing as how nobody else was staying in that night. He wandered the halls, listening to tinny orchestra music playing over the loudspeakers. It felt almost like walking into the past. Because he hadn't yet entered sobriety, King decided to stop by the hotel bar for a nightcap. That's where he met the hotel bartender Grady and decided to have a pleasant chat with him over a glass of scotch. When King slid a twenty across the bar, Grady smiled, told him, Your money's no good here, sir, and gave him the drink on the house. King finally retired to bed with Tabitha. It was an unsettling night. He could hear the wind howling outside his window and strange noises in the hall outside. His thoughts were of his young children, Joe and Naomi, who were with a sitter back in Boulder. When he eventually managed to drift off to sleep, he had a disturbing, vivid nightmare. Three-year-old Joe was running through the hallways of the Stanley Hotel, crying, looking over his shoulder. A fire hose he'd seen in one of the hotel's hallways had uncoiled itself and was slithering after Joe like a giant, vicious python. King woke up in a cold sweat, breathing heavily, having almost fallen out of bed. Something in his mind had been unlocked. He stood up lit a cigarette, and sat at the desk near the window in room 217. King would later say, It was like God had put me there to hear that and see those things. He began taking notes, running through all the new ideas in his mind. According to King, by the time he'd finished the cigarette, he had the bones of his next novel, The Shining, ready to go. The psychic little boy would no longer be in a haunted amusement park, but a haunted hotel, based heavily on the Stanley. When the book was published in 1977, it became an instant hit. The loosely autobiographical nightmare about an alcoholic writer being driven by the supernatural forces to commit violence against his family captivated and horrified millions, including the iconic director Stanley Kubrick. And by 1980, Kubrick's loose adaption hit screens across the globe, spreading the story and, by extension, the legends around the Stanley Hotel even further. Given the wild popularity of the book and film which King had widely attributed to his night in the Stanley Hotel, it dragged the failing hotel out from the jaws of demolition and, much like the ghosts of the Overlook, 
gave it a frightening second life as one of America's most haunted hotels, called the Disneyland of Ghosts by some. In the following decades, this led to thousands of people from all over the world visiting in hopes of having their own paranormal experiences. And, for better or worse, a lot of these guests weren't disappointed. The Stanley Hotel isn't known as the United States' most haunted house for nothing. Over the last 60 years or so, a wide range of paranormal phenomena has been cited by a variety of sources, leading to a huge backlog of ghostly eyewitness accounts throughout the building. One of the more iconic haunted locations in the Stanley is Room 217, where Stephen and Tabitha King were staying when the idea for The Shining was born. Film buffs listening to this might be thinking, wait, don't you mean Room 237? And for the movie, that would be true. However, in King's original novel, he made the Room 217 as a nod to his own time at the Stanley. The Timberline Hotel, which Kubrick used for the Overlook Hotel's exterior shots in the movie, worried that the film's depiction of the legendary room would scare people away from booking Room 217 in their hotel. Kubrick changed the room to Room 237, seeing as how the Timberline Hotel didn't have a Room 237. The Timberline's fears were proven to be unfounded because Room 217 is now the Stanley Hotel's most in-demand room, which probably accounts for the number of paranormal experiences that have been recorded there. Elizabeth Wilson, the woman who was almost killed by the gas explosion in Room 217 back in 1911, continued to work at the Stanley Hotel until her death decades later. Multiple guests have reported that Wilson's ghost still haunts the room to this day, where she still carries out her duties. People claim that Wilson's ghost has unpacked their luggage when they weren't in the room, as well as moving different items around and even tidying. Wilson's ghost also shows her old-fashioned sensibilities by showing particular scorn for unmarried couples sleeping in the room. Some of these unmarried couples felt a cold force between them in the night, and in the morning, found that their luggage had been packed and placed next to the door. It's not quite as bad as convincing you to murder your family, but still, it's rude to judge. Nobody knows what Elizabeth Wilson would think of the fact that the Stanley Hotel now offers Room 217 commemorative shot glasses in the gift shop. Room 217 was also the site of another incredibly strange visitation and another paranormal encounter. While The Shining is the most famous movie to be inspired by the Stanley Hotel, it's far from the only movie to feature it. In 1994, Jim Carrey and Jeff Daniels were in the Stanley filming their hit comedy, Dumb and Dumber. A lot of the cast and crew remained in the hotel overnight, with Carrey sleeping in room 217. While, to this day, Carrey refuses to elaborate on what happened to him in that room, he abruptly ran out of it, half-naked, one night during the middle of shooting. He ran down to the front desk and demanded to check out, refusing to spend another night in the Stanley Hotel. Whatever happened to him in there must have been horrifying to scare a man fearless enough to star in Mr. Popper's Penguins many years later. But Room 217 is far from the only part of the hotel that seems replete with ghost sightings. Another famously spooky part of the hotel is known as the Vortex, the stairs between the floors in the hotel's lobby. It got its name from supposedly being a nexus of powerful supernatural energies that physically affects many of the more physically sensitive guests. Some report feeling dizzy or cold when passing through the vortex. Some supernatural experts refer to the vortex as the rapid transit system for ghosts around the hotel. Some guests have even claimed to see Freeland and Flora Stanley themselves ascending the stairs at night, but the vortex isn't the only place in the Stanley where the hotel's famous founders have been seen long after their deaths. 
Freelan himself has often been sighted hanging around the billiards room and the bar. That last one is a little strange, seeing as Freelan had been a teetotaler in life and even refused cigars due to his fragile lungs after recovering from tuberculosis. But if Freelan's ghost really was there, perhaps he just likes seeing others enjoy themselves in his hotel. And of course, the concert hall was a labor of love created by Freelan as a gift for his wife, a gifted pianist. Much like the Gold Room in the Overlook, it was the site of many opulent Jazz Age parties for the rich urbanites vacationing in the Rockies. Flora loved the concert hall so much that many claimed to have seen and heard her in there even today, playing the piano well into the night, as though her party never really ended. The concert hall also used to have a two-lane bowling alley beneath a trapdoor, though nobody has ever reported hearing Flora scoring strikes in the middle of the night. Jokes aside, Flora isn't even the only ghost still residing in the concert hall. One of them is Lucy, who is believed to have once been a homeless woman who took refuge in the hotel. She is extremely obliging of the many ghost hunters who've come to the Stanley Hotel looking for the paranormal. If they ask for a sign of paranormal presence, she allegedly causes the lights to flash. Another ghost known to haunt the concert hall is a former hotel handyman named Paul. He had numerous duties around the Stanley Hotel when he was alive, one of them being enforcing the 11 p.m. curfew. That's why some people have heard a raspy whisper telling them to get out if they remained in the concert hall after 11, including a construction worker who had a more physical interaction with Paul. While he was working on renovations throughout the night, he felt an invisible force nudging at him until he finally gave in and left. Though Paul isn't always a grouch, he's been known to enjoy interacting with tour groups in the concert hall, pre-curfew, and making their flashlights turn off and on again. However, while the concert hall and room 217 are some of the more famous haunted spots in the Stanley Hotel, true Stanley connoisseurs know that even more paranormal happenings have been reported on the dreaded fourth floor. In the early days of the hotel, the fourth floor was a giant attic space, reserved mainly for children and the nannies minding them. That's why, to this day, people sleeping in rooms on the fourth floor can hear children running and giggling through the halls. The jury's out on whether any of these are a pair of spooky British children who've been murdered by their father, but people have reported ghost children trying to play with their hair for years. In room 401, there's a closet that's been known to open and close on its own, as well as an incredibly sinister spirit who's been said to touch people inappropriately. The same spirit has also allegedly stolen wedding rings. In room 407, there's believed to be some kind of bed-based spirit who tucks people in while they're sleeping and sometimes sits at the foot of their bed, only to disappear when the lights turn on. And things are even wilder in room 428. Furniture moves around when people aren't looking. Footsteps have been heard above the ceiling despite the fact that the fourth floor is the top floor, and the roof is slanted in a way that should make footsteps on top of it impossible. But there's something significantly stranger in there, too. The ghost of a friendly cowboy, believed to have once been a man named Jim Nugent, a spirit from the Rocky Mountains. And when I say friendly, I mean really friendly. He mainly appears in the corner of women's beds and gives them icy kisses in their sleep. There's also a number of other places on the grounds of the Stanley Hotel that have long histories of paranormal activity. The Stanley Hotel has been around for so long that it predates indoor refrigeration, meaning they needed to build a dedicated outdoor room to hold two huge blocks of ice. This became known as the Ice House. Because of advances in technology, the ice house is no longer needed for its original purpose, 
So the owners of the hotel converted it into a small museum to display some of Freeland Stanley's inventions, including some of his original steam-powered cars. In addition to these pieces of vintage technology, it's also believed to be the home of two spirits. One of them is a young boy named Billy, who's described as sweet, but shy, and has appeared as a blurry, spectral figure in some people's ice house photos. There are believed to be ghosts of both humans and animals in the underground cave network beneath the Stanley Hotel, used primarily to covertly transport staff to different sections of the hotel. These underground cave networks contain large deposits of limestone and quartz, which parapsychologists believe could store the kind of spiritual energy that leads to ghost manifestation. One of the human ghosts trapped in the cave system beneath the hotel was once a pastry chef working in the hotel's kitchen, leading to an otherwise unexplainable smell of fresh-baked bread in the caverns. Multiple people walking through the tunnels have also sighted a small gray cat with glowing green eyes. But that's far from the only animal ghost on the site of the Stanley Hotel, seeing as it also has a pet cemetery for animals that passed away on site. Thankfully, it isn't nearly as terrifying as Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, as both of the most frequently spotted pet ghosts of the Stanley Hotel are friendly. One is Cassie, the ghost of a lovable golden retriever. The other is Comanche, an adorable fluffy white cat. Because the Stanley Hotel is always eager to capitalize on all the popular versions of The Shining, despite the fact that the 1980 Kubrick film was filmed in a completely different location, Another one of the hotel's eeriest locations is a relatively new addition. In 2015, the Stanley Hotel hosted a competition for outside artists to design a new hedge maze, much like the one featured in the movie. When the right design was selected, the promenade outside the hotel was demolished and replaced with the new maze. Nobody has seen any ghosts in the new maze just yet, but people who ventured inside experienced strange physical effects, like heightened anxiety, dizziness, and difficulty breathing. There's no way of knowing whether this is because of any supernatural influence or the fear that comes from remembering the terrifying final sequence of the movie, where crazed Jack Torrance chases his son Danny through the Overlook's hedge maze with an axe. While some, like the managers of the Timberliner Hotel, believe that a reputation as a spooky haunted old building might be bad for business, the story of the Stanley Hotel has taught us otherwise. Before Stephen King rolled in, the Stanley Hotel was on the precipice of closing down. After developing a reputation as the haunted hotel that inspired The Shining, the hotel was brought back from the dead. These days, the hotel isn't just a hotel. It offers daily and nightly ghost tours, has a museum, a restaurant, a bar, and even a luxurious spa. The hotel has been featured on popular ghost hunting shows like Ghost Adventures and Ghost Hunters, and was also the set for a Shining TV miniseries written by Stephen King himself in 1997. The hotel also saw renewed interest in 2013 when King released Dr. Sleep, his sequel to The Shining, and then again in 2019 with Mike Flanagan's movie adaption of the new book. The hotel even has its own official paranormal investigator, Lisa Neihart, who leads the ghost hunts around the hotel. Much like the many spirits inhabiting its grounds, the Stanley Hotel just won't die. Over a hundred years after its creation, it's stronger than ever. As I said at the start of this episode, hotels are naturally eerie places. You enter a room where you must sleep and be at ease, but you know that your place here will only be temporary. You wonder whether to unpack your bags and put your clothes in the drawers or just leave them be. Because no matter what the marketing insists, 
This place is not yours. You are its. You have no idea how many people have been in this room before you, or who they were. Who's still alive, and who's passed on. Who was on their way to the trip of a lifetime, and who was on the run? You'll never know. All these stories are swallowed up by the hotel. It's been said that in hotels there is no past and no future, just an infinite present. Like a certain caretaker, you've always been here. You might wonder that if you die in your sleep tonight, whether by heart attack or axe murder, whether your ghost, too, will be trapped in the hotel, remaining forever in the place where you know you were never meant to stay for long. That's the insidious power of hotels. Even beyond The Shining, they form the basis for so many other diverse artistic offerings. From 1408 to American Horror Story, from the Hotel California to Hasbin Hotel, it all started with The Shining, and The Shining started with the Stanley Hotel. So if ever you're driving through the Rockies and you find your eyes getting tired, maybe it's time to check in to the Stanley Hotel for a night or two. It's a lovely place these days. You might enjoy it so much that you'll want to stay there forever. And ever. And ever. And ever. Tonight's episode was written by Henry Galley. Our host and narrator was Nicole Goodnight. Our editor and musician was incredible Danny Sweet. And I'm your showrunner, Pacific S. Obadiah. Our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. And this is a bloody disgusting show. For more information, visit www.insidious.show.